I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2008. Thirteen years later, this book and its discussion of a divided America seems just as timely and relevant. I'm very excited for the next few minutes to be able to speak with a very, very talented writer by the name of Joe Bajant. You can catch a lot of what he does uh, in an online column, which can be found at www.joebagent.com. I'll spell all that for you uh, at the end of the um, interview. But uh, he is someone who really knows how to write in compelling fashion about uh, some of the most uh, important issues facing us. And uh, his book, Deer Hunting with Jesus, Dispatches from America's Class War, is a really fascinating look at Joe Bajan's hometown of Winchester, Virginia. And uh, it is the story of, of Joe Bajan essentially being at, at odds with many of the people who live there, and for that matter, with a lot of his own family, uh, viewing the world in very, very different ways. And this book is, is not only about those contrasting world visions, but also maybe a little bit about how one side can communicate with the other and make sense of, of the other's perspective. At least that's one of the things which I take away from this really entertaining and very thought-provoking book. Again, it's called Deer Hunting with Jesus, Dispatches from America's Class War, published by Crown. And Joe Bajant, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you for having me on. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances which brought you back uh, to your hometown of Winchester, Virginia. Well, you know, my family's been here for since 1745, so, uh, you know, I have deep roots here. Um, and, you, you know, you, you're, it, those of us who are lucky enough to have a hometown, to have a series of uh, connections with place and people and everything, you never really forget it. So I, I, I left, I lived on the West Coast and in other places for nearly 30 years, and then, of course, like all Southerners, you come back, to, somehow you end up coming back around to your roots. So uh, I looked for a job on the East Coast. I worked in magazine publishing uh, as an editor for different kinds of magazines and moved back here and bought a big old run-down Victorian house. But when I looked around in the old neighborhood I grew up, I was in absolute shock at how much worse off the people were, although often they didn't feel that way. But the fact of the matter was that the, so many of them had no health care, they had no real financial horizons. Uh, they didn't have any job security. They, um, many of them had the houses that they grew up in uh, that their parents owned. They were now renting from landlords. And I finally came to the conclusion that a large disenfranchised group of white working Americans are not even on the radar scope because they don't complain. Bad debt, you know, hard, you know, medically incurred debts and so on were bringing them down in a way that uh, I just couldn't believe what was happening to them. You know, as you describe this, uh, it, it occurs to me now, uh, it, it didn't <laughs> come to me quite so clearly as I, as I read your book, and now I understand this, I think, even better. Uh, the, 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 the beauty of, of this scenario, I mean, it, it's, it's of a very sad picture, but the fact that you returned to a place that you once knew and saw the changes and and immediately knew that, that something had gone wrong. Versus if you had never left Winchester, Virginia, uh, it probably would not have struck you in the same sort of way. It would have been sort of a creeping deterioration. 
or if you'd simply gone to another place that was unfamiliar to you and tried to chart what was wrong. But the fact that you returned to a place where you had once lived, I mean, what a perfect scenario to sort of gauge the decline of a place and its citizens. That's a really good observation. I had um, not thought about what would happen if I would have stayed. I'd probably be working at the Rubbermaid plant or, or someplace around here like that. I got away from here. I quit school in the 11th grade and went in the Navy. <laughs> you know, I was restless and just wanted something different. I got a GED in the Navy and then subsequently went to school and be, became a journalist and then an executive in a magazine publishing company. When I came back, I wasn't prepared for it. And it's just like you say, it's so incremental. It's that old thing of the frog boiling in the water. Hmm. And uh, I, I don't think that anybody that didn't leave here, I mean, anybody that stayed here, could see the creepingly and again too these are uncomplaining people and they believe the whole thing about personal responsibility so when things went wrong for instance um oh a lot of people have very high credit card debt on two or three credit cards but the fact of the matter was they had a medical emergency and so it cost tens of thousands of dollars so they're under that crushing debt but they saw it as oh my own failure my own failure to really handle money right hmm. i felt really sad about that because there's a larger picture there that says, look, you know, people deserve to be healthy. Why does your kid have rotten teeth? Hmm. You know? That's part of what, there's really two things that bother you at the root of, of much of what you see. One is this sort of passivity, this acceptance of this situation, which, which you find unacceptable. The other thing that also is, is such a running theme is... Um, Anti-intellectualism, which at another point in the book you call uh, the rejection of fancy learning, <laughs> the idea that that uh, the more you have been educated out there in the world, uh, the less you can be trusted or the, the less valuable your perspective might be. Talk for uh, with us a moment about some of the ways in which this anti-intellectualism uh, showed its face to you, and also what you did about that as someone who probably considers himself uh, to be you know, intellectually uh, pretty alive, trying to, to interact meaningfully with people who, who just don't seem interested in, in, in that kind of intellectual uh, life? Well, we were all, and still continue to be in these families, raised with no real intellectual horizons. Um, I mean, the, the idea of going to college is not mentioned amongst millions of families. It was never mentioned in mine, never even thought of. Um, America's working class predisposition against in, uh, intellectuals and intellectualism is a long-running thing. It's a long thread in American history. Uh, and the experience with it is not always good. For instance, uh, the cream of the crop around here, the, just like a lot of other places I've taught, I've spoke to people publicly and all. The, the best and the brightest are cherry-picked out of there through scholarships and so on, and they end up they're sipping on a latte in Seattle. You know, they never come back. Because I would ask where certain friends are. Oh, they, they went off to school and they just never came back. And uh, there's also uh, in the most desperate, I'd say real working poor, a history, if a whole family, if nobody ever ever got an education, then in the first place it doesn't occur to you as an option, and second, if some of them did and never came back, parents see it as almost a threat, 
lose your child to it. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's a complex, it's, it's a very complex thing. But in general, you know, working people in general, they, they're going to be conservative by nature and not like the new, which is, of course, a, mind of, a life of the mind brings you something new all the time. That's why you practice it. And they tend to be conservative if, if you don't want to risk what little you've got. So you vote conservatively, you live relatively conservatively compared to the rest of America. And But the bad part of it is the worst kind of poverty is ignorance. And, and having said that, I'd say that the worst poverty I see is in the white-gated suburbs. I mean, they live insulated lives of nothing. This My, my pals down at the beer hall are at least worldly. Mm. <laughs> So, so, so ignorance can uh, can show its face in a lot of different ways. Well, I think the whole there's a class divide. Nobody wants to admit that. Uh, is it liberal conservative, or is it urban versus rural? Is it educated versus uneducated? Well, it's those three right there. Put them together, and if you if you stop and think about it, in the first place, only 19% of Americans get a college edu- an, an education from a really legitimate university. 22% if you count technical and trade schools in which you'll never open a piece of literature or be exposed you know, to the humanities. 27% if you want to count everything that's on the back of a matchbook and Christian, Christian colleges that teach nothing but biblical creationism. But however you put it, 60 or 70 percent of Americans that don't go to, uh, well, more than 70, 75 percent that don't get a college education are left without the tools that it takes to function in a, textually and, and with literacy in a society. I, I don't think much of universities in general. I think they're self-perpetuating pieces of crap to grind out managers for a capitalist system. But having said that, at least you come out with enough uh, literate skills to function, you know, and uh, in the old neighborhood that I write about in there, two out of five don't have a, a high school education. Well, and as you say, uh, for, for for many, many Americans, it is not even a, a possibility that is seriously considered. And if that's the case, then it's it's little wonder then that, that they also go through maybe high school uh, very, very differently because... Uh, they don't see that high school education as a springboard to still further learning and still further growth. Uh, it's just something you sort of grind your way through uh, un- until you finish, and then you 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 start uh, working at a job someplace. I mean, it's such an interesting uh, way to to look at one's life. Well, yeah, you know, if you come from a family where not now, my wife. Uh, she's from Illinois, and it was just an accepted thing. Everybody went to college. I never knew anybody in my family that did. I barely knew anybody that did, period, when I was a kid. And, you know, if that's not a possibility, the other part of it is, is that getting through high school, <clears throat> the way that, that, that certain kids will apply themselves is because they've had the model in the home. College is an expectation, and that's a whole different track. That's also a minority track of Americans. Uh, uh, statistically, all the government says one out of four quit high school. Hmm. I look around, the number's a lot higher than that, and I could not understand why. If, of course, if they can't see working class America anyway, they're not going to see what the dropout rate is. Turns out, when high schools, if somebody drops out 
and they show it as transferring. You know what I mean? Like the guy says, I'm quitting school and going to such and such. Then the kid transferred, didn't he? <laughs> you know, and it's never picked up on the other end. And I, I found out that a lot of people just sort of disappear, and it's as if they transferred out of school on the records. Hmm. For good. And, uh, <laughs> and the the rate is driven higher yet, of course, by um, uh, immigrants. You know, nothing against immigrants, but you know, a whole lot of people. I mean, I've I've lived in Latin American societies, and I live in one now, part of the year, and. A lot of the emphasis, you know, with the, with the people that come from the rural areas of Latin America, Mexico, Nicaragua, and all that, have the same view of it that poor working whites have, the same hmm. view of education. Right. You say at one point that, you know, growing up, uh, and, and you as a young adult, for instance, you said we could always believe that our kids had a chance for a better life. I certainly achieved a better life than my parents, but you say these days... It's harder to believe that. That class divide was uh, then a steep and ugly ditch. Now it is an absolute canyon and growing deeper. What, yes. is, what is the most compelling evidence of that? Of the class divide? Right. I mean, of the fact that it is even, even, even more uh, marked than it once was and, and, and getting more so. Because the... Um, the methods by which it perpetuates itself have hardened. Uh, the, the, the class, say, that goes to uh, an institution of higher learning is more separated than ever. You know they can't even perceive each other. The, the thing that shocks me is that so many people, you know, and I'm a liberal. Heck, I'm so far left I've got to send out smoke signals to see the Democratic Party, you know. So I'll say that right now. But the thing is, is that after a life of living in urban liberal communities and university towns and publishing centers and all that stuff, it was very, very clear to me that they had no idea of what of, of the life of the guy that greases their Prius, you know, or laid the sod in their new house or whatever. Absolutely no comprehension of these people or their lives. They were just like fixtures in their lives. And the degree of separation that you could possibly have from something that represents 60 or 65 percent of the population, it just struck me how here I was doing the same thing. I did the same thing the Democrats did. At first, I ignored the working class in America, and then I forgot they existed. Hmm. It was very easy to do when I was coming back from France on a plane with my Cuban cigars. Hmm. <laughs> it's very easy to do because the experience around you did not integrate these people, and you weren't going to you weren't going to bump into them unless they were waiting on your hand and foot. Hmm. Wiping we're your grandmother's butt in the nursing home, you might run into one. Hmm. We're speaking with Joe Bajent. We're talking about his book, Deer Hunting with Jesus: Dispatches from America's Class War. It tells the experience of, of him returning to his hometown hometown of, of Winchester, Virginia. Let's talk about this point because I think this is especially interesting, and I feel like. This is one of the most important parts of your book because I feel like even if someone is not as progressively minded as you are, I mean, even someone who would count themselves more of a conservative or, or a moderate or whatever, but not where you are on the political spectrum, I think they would still find so much of your discussion really fascinating on the divide uh, that, 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 we are, that we are talking about. You say, for instance, that you know a given person in, in Winchester, Virginia, who is uh, 
quite conservative. You, you say that it, it's most likely that, that a given person of that persuasion will not personally know one single registered Democrat. I mean, they won't know a single one, won't, won't have one as a friend, knowingly even have one maybe as a neighbor or, a, or an acquaintance, uh, you know, let alone ever engage in any kind of meaningful conversation. And, and probably, as you, you're just alluding to, vice versa is true as well. I mean, people not yeah, even knowing each true. other. Well, the, one of the things is that um, the Republican Party has great grassroots, meaningful grassroots. The average businessman in a small town is a Republican, unless historically, you know, it's somewhere near Chicago or something, and they've always been Democrats. But, you know, the guy at the Rotary Club, the guy that has the shoe store, or traditionally anyway, in Harry Truman's Main Street America, you know, they were so often, he's not a good example, but they were so often Republicans and, and believed the Republican values, you know, of business and small business and the, the business of business. Well, yeah, you the, say you say. I just like I like this quote. You say Republicans' everyday lives seem naturally woven into yeah. the fabric of the community, uh, in a way that, that that the everyday lives of the left have not been since the Great Depression. Yes. Yeah, see, when they go um, when they go shopping, you know, it used to be anyway for the big box stores, or they get a loan or whatever, they have face to face contact with. Uh, you know, with the Republican small business and middle-sized business class, uh, they're also they're very likely to see them in some of the places they gather because, um, you know, the um, I don't know when you'll ever see an urbane liberal Democrat in a VFW listening to Teddy Whip and the Doodoppers play country music. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> and so they have contact with it, you know, and... It rubs off. It also provides explanations for things. Not that anybody sits around talking about politics. Working class people, they don't even think about it until two weeks before the election and the noise gets so loud you can't avoid it. You know, hmm. you're thinking about truck payments and your kids' performance on a swim team or whatever they're doing, you know. It's, um, it's a divide. Hmm. And they call it a culture war. Yeah, if you want to call it that, but that'd be a uniquely liberal thing of describing it, what it is is class Hmm. You say the rights, the rightists succeed at forcing their vision of America down our throats because they have committed themselves to organization and communication. I mean, they are right there where ordinary people are. And you say liberals, in contrast, chatter among themselves online or at social gatherings and make little attempt to engage, must, much less convert, the heathen tribes. Uh, I mean, that is a really interesting observation and uh, it would be interesting to know, uh, you know, uh, people of that persuasion, what their reaction is to hearing that. I mean, how many of them see themselves in that indictment? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's all over the place, um, the, is re- the reception for the book. Uh, it got a good review on Free Republic, you know. Uh, that's a website, a very conservative website. And, you know, it's surprising because the uh, urban liberals online a lot of them online you know very active yeah they're active online <laughs> you know we're just offended others said that's exactly the truth uh so the response was all over the place some conservatives said it's a great book it's absolutely accurate when i go my lord these two are agreeing some parts of them are agreeing uh i can't say i've had a bunch of hate mail or anything uh, most people they agreed with it i, did. I haven't had 
I don't know what to say about that except to me it indicates there is middle ground. You know, I think there's some degree of compassion out there left in the world. I think people want to see America be a better country. They just don't want to get off their butts to do it. <laughs> One of the things that is intriguing for you on a very personal level is, is not only getting to know some of these people who are ideologically so different from yourself, but also that you are from a very religious family, in fact, with a brother that is, that is a clergyman. And um, you say, you, you describe, I think, in very interesting, compelling fashion, uh, the, the interesting challenge it has been for you to accept them and for them to accept you, and which to some extent, to maybe a remarkable extent, uh, you managed to do. Well, you know, I, I am lucky. Uh, I grew up in a family where there was love. It was certainly tough love. The old man would whip your butt with a belt if you did something wrong. It was a tough Calvinist, Scotch-Irish rooted <laughs> family and love, but uh, even even older, I mean, now all of us are in our 50s and I'm 60, uh, we, we did love one another and we do love one another. The, the fact that there is virtually nothing to talk about in this alienated world is the horror. Uh, I'll never be a, uh, a fundamentalist Christian and he'll never be a secular humanist, but, um, well, to call him clergy, uh, you're being kind. A lot of fundamentalist preachers, I call them stump preachers. They didn't go to us. <laughs> it goes all the way back to colonial times. And again, the Presbyterian Kirk and the uh, Scots-Irish Calvinism. These people are essentially self-educated, charismatic, self-inspired. Uh, so you can't really say clergy. I guess you could, but it just doesn't have that air of formality about it. Interesting. So, so I was absolutely, I was really surprised when my brother became a preacher. I was even more shocked when he came out. Uh, I mean, when, when he tells me about casting out demons, uh, many little incidents. I think I put a few of them in the book. Oh, they're, they're, they're very, very interesting. I want to ask you about something else. I would hate to not have the chance to ask you this before our time is up. You say that one of the biggest quandaries in writing this book is that people trust me not to make fools of them. You happen to say this, actually, in this chapter in which you talk about your, your very religious family. But it seems to me that that is a theme uh, that stretches throughout this book uh, in, in all of these different people whom you encountered, trying to be true to them and to who they are and who they are not, and, and somehow to do so without ridiculing them, even inadvertently. Tell us a bit about how you handled that really interesting challenge. Well, it wasn't hard. I love them. You love these people even... Yes, I do. They're my people. And uh, it's not in me to ridicule them in that way. Sure, I can make some jokes, uh, being one of them. Uh, I can make jokes about us being rednecks and hard-headed and all that, and it's in good nature. I haven't had one working-class person complain <clears throat> about my portrayal of the people in there, even the people portrayed. Not at all. Now, they don't buy the book or read the book, because they don't buy and they don't read, you know, but... The tavern owner in the book, I gave them a signed copy, and every now and then they read some of it aloud, and everybody goes, hey, that's old so-and-so, and they laugh, and they go, yep, that's the truth. That's exactly what happens with insurance and things. On the other hand, I've had complaints that said I mocked and ridiculed them from rich people, of all people. I get these calls on the phone, how could you say such things about our town? 
you know, there's a 10 or 12 very wealthy families here that control one and everything. I get called, you have besmirched the town's leading families. I didn't know we were being led anywhere, but, uh, you know. Uh, so it's surprising. The accusations though, on those occasions that they do come up uh, are from the wealthy people in town that exploit these working people. Hmm. I can't believe it. They own the businesses that, that do the poultry or whatever, and they get on Amazon, and they got like an organized campaign, you know, to, to uh, knock off as many stars as they can. Uh, this just really surprises me, and it's also kind of indicates the nature of their ability to organize. Or I suppose the paper will come out here with both barrels pretty soon. You know, it's an ultra-conservative push-to-war finer families paper. But I had none of the people in there, working-class people, complained. In fact, they were laughing and happy. Hmm. <laughs> they had me sign books that they're never going to read, you know? <laughs> Interesting. Well, they... it, it indicates a class. Oh, difference. Right. Well, and it indicates, too, that at the heart of this book is, is your love for and concern for what you call the working screwed. I mean, those who are not being given, in your view, uh, a fair shake at all. And, uh, and, and certainly you hope for, for better days for all of them, uh, and not just the ones who live in your hometown of Winchester, Virginia. Well, my hometown is just... Um very typical. Uh, I could Springfield, Oregon, right next to Eugene. Eugene's a liberal bastion and a, a super, you know, a university town. Next to it is Springfield, Oregon, entirely inhabited by the kind of people in this book. I could show you Maine, Indiana, Illinois, Texas, Iowa. They're everywhere, and we recognize one another. I know, I know what joint to walk into. I can find something to talk to people about because they're all the same and they got the same problems. So I focused on one quadrant of my hometown because it was just so perfect. And also, I understood it thoroughly. You can't talk about the roots of something that happens in Moline, Illinois, which is exactly the same kind of thing, a manufactured town. Without, I could look at these people, and I knew their childhood. I knew their grandparents. I knew the house that we played in their yard. And so there was a certain ghostly quality to it. I mean, I was constantly looking at the past and then looking at the person. My Lord, they're all 60 and fat and burnt out, too. So it, it, it gave it a resonance because I understood both the community and the people. Hmm. How is it that you are not exactly that? I mean, you said these are your, your people, and yet obviously in some very important ways you are not one of them. How did it happen that you are not? Well, I get asked that a lot, and I don't know. I can think of the things that made it happen differently. Uh, I grew up uh, up till I was uh, 12 or 13, I guess it was, whatever you're in when you're in the fifth grade. And um, I played in the woods a lot by myself on a really lonely farm up there. My grandparents had. It was a wonderful place, though, where they kill a dozen hogs a year, and people tromp in from the snow from hunting. And it was a wonderful way. But during the day, you were alone playing in the woods, and so you got to develop a little bit of an interior life, you know, just because I don't think kids have that today. They've got the distractions, the games and everything. But an interior life, it's almost, it's of the mind, but it also could be called moral or spiritual. You had a lot of time to think. Then when I moved into town, I had more opportunities, but also more, more. I think that I came with a certain degree of reflection. I think it's what makes me right in a lot 
lot of people, right? And then, lo and behold, there was the town library. Huge, wonderful old Beaux-Arts place with thousands and thousands of books. Well, in my family, uh, despite, they may not have been great readers, and they might have been educated, but now my mother and dad would lay around on the bed in the evening and read ranch romances and all the pulp novels and stuff. I mean, it was really crap by any standard. <laughs> but the act of watching them do it. And then my mother, who deserved a heck of a lot better out of life than she got, she grew up uh, picking cotton in North Carolina, tough life, tough life, alcoholic parents, so on, would uh, subscribe to the Reader's Digest. And then she subscribed to the Reader's Digest Condensed Book Club. Well, all that time up there in the country, I was laying around reading them. Oh, my Lord, I just thought this dazzling world of Africa and, and the mystery of, of urban people getting off and on of trains going nowhere. So by the time I moved to town, I moved into a, first of all, a classist society in which the redneck kid with the bib overalls from the country got immediately put in a slow learner's class. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and then the other thing was that library, you know, and... uh so by the time I was 16, I'd read Genet and all these people. Uh, it was just like this huge banquet after school and all through the weekends and unlimited books. And that had a lot to do with it. It had a heck of a lot to do with it. And I still hunted and fished and had a trap line in the morning to pay for school books and stuff. Uh, so it was a world of both of them mixed and traveling along side by side. Uh, I had an intellectual life that was budding. Actually, it was doing just Eight, you know, compared to what possibilities are today for a kid in school. And I had some teachers that encouraged it. They put me, it was odd, I, they put me in the industrial arts track, spend your life in shop. Hmm. Because, hey, this kid's been little over in West Virginia, he can't have two brain cells. Hmm. But at the same time, there were some really beautiful and gifted teachers that, um, that encouraged me, one of them encouraged me to write. Wow. Well, I, for one, am glad they did, because otherwise we wouldn't have in front of us uh, this very, very thought-provoking book called Deer Hunting with Jesus, Dispatches from America's Class War, published by Crown, and the author, Joe Bajant. Joe Bajant, I'm really glad we had this conversation today, and uh, I hope we get to talk again sometime. And best wishes to you and to uh, all the citizens of your hometown of Winchester, Virginia. Well, thanks.